Good morning. Today is the beginning of a new teaching series that we're doing here at Covenant. It's called Journey to the Cross. It's kind of interesting that Lent this year starts on Valentine's Day. Two of them go very well together. Love and repentance. In fact, maybe some of you, maybe some of us, the best way to start Valentine's Day is we need to repent of something with the person that we're journeying with in life. But um, that just may be me. But, uh, but, but it is uh, going to be a great journey that we are going to go on. This journey is for 40 days. And we will be looking at one single chapter over these 40 days from the book of Luke. It's going to be a little different than how maybe we've done Lent in the past because uh, often some of the scripture passages that we're going to talk about, you don't really get to till Holy Week, okay? You get to with uh, around Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. These scripture passages are going to be starting today with the betrayal of Jesus, okay? These are the last kind of days of Jesus' life. It's going to get into uh, the Last Supper and his time in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays as the lynch mob comes to get him. He is going to be tried. Peter's going to deny him. These are all things that we don't normally deal with, especially early on in Lent. We wait till Holy Week. The reason we're going to do this a little differently this year is because there's a way that the church calendar is built that is out of sync with how the Gospels are written, okay? And here's what I mean by that. In the Gospel of Luke, which we'll be looking at for this period of Lent, there um, is over 20% of the story that takes place between what we know as Palm Sunday and what we know as Easter Sunday. In that one week, over 20% of Luke focuses on that. So while he's got years of Jesus' life, and he's got years of Jesus' teaching and healing, and it's not saying that's not important, Luke is writing in a way where over 20% is about this one week, this which you and I as followers of Jesus believe is the central act in human history. And in the church calendar, we cover it one week out of 52. Now, some of that's because we've got other scriptures and other books that we're looking at, Old Testament and New Testament, but I want us over these 40 days to look really deep at some of what we see as the central parts of the human story. Lent is a 40-day period where we are to act deliberately. If you don't know, the, the, the number 40 is very, very important in the Bible, the number 40 is about, uh, signifies times of great change and great transformation. The number 40 is, for example, used in the flood story. When Noah and his family and the animals are on the ark, it rains for 40 days and 40 nights, and God changes the world in that time. The world is different at the end of it than it was at the beginning. Or you take, for example, when the people of Israel are led out of slavery in Egypt. They leave slavery, and for the first part of their 40-year journey in the wilderness, they are basically characterized by anxiety and fear. They kind of wander around going, well, we don't know where their food is, and we don't know where there's something to drink, and they even start talking about, maybe it'd be better if we went back into slavery, because at least it's predictable, right? At least it's predictable at that point. And yet at the end of 40 years, God has done this incredible work in who they are as a people, that when they get to the end of the 40-year journey in the wilderness, God tells them, and they boldly follow, to cross the Jordan River and to move into the promised land. 
God changes them over that 40-year time. Or take, for example, in the New Testament that Jesus is, after his baptism, early on in the gospel stories, he goes into the wilderness. He's led, it says, by the Spirit of God. And for 40 days, he's in the wilderness. And it's there that he fasts. And it's there that he is tempted by the devil. And while he is there, something happens in him and, and in his call that when he comes out of the wilderness after those 40 days, he immediately begins his public ministry. His life looks different before and after that 40-day period. The number 40 is significant for Lent. This, friends, is not something that we just go through because this is the church and these are our traditions and this is what we do. This is a period of time where we believe that if we take it seriously, your life and my life and our life is going to look different 40 days from now than it does today. We believe that God will work in this to change and speak to us and transform our lives. And the way that happens is through this process of reflection and repentance. Those are kind of lost arts in our world today, but you're going to be invited to do it over these 40 days, to reflect and to repent. Reflection is not something we do very much anymore because if nothing else, we have smartphones, right? So anytime we have a moment of silence and we kind of feel that sense of being alone, it's like, well, I can just pull out my smartphone and I feel plugged in again, right? I'm all, the, the human race remembers me and I remember them. So I'm just constantly stimulated all the time rather than just being able to sit still and reflect. We're going to invite you to consider some ways on a daily basis that you can just be still and reflect about how you live about the decisions you make that you don't even see as decisions anymore because they're just the patterns of what we do, of how you spend your time, of what you focus on. And then we're going to be asked you to think about where we are called to not just reflect, but also to repent. And repenting isn't about feeling something. It's not about thinking something primarily. Repenting is an action word. It means that you're journeying in one direction, and then you turn around and start moving in a new way. You start moving in a new direction. It's an action term. So this is going to be 40 days where we're going to ask you to reflect on some different things and then consider where's a place God's saying, you need to move in a new direction, in your marriage or in your friendships or in your life or in your parenting or in school or in work. This is a time to start moving in some new directions to build healthier, more kingdom-oriented pa patterns to your life. Okay? I'm excited about this time. I'm excited as you and I together go on this journey, this journey to the cross over these 40 days. I look forward to what God's going to do in us and around us. To start today, we're going to look at the first six verses of Luke 22, okay, as we begin our move through this chapter. This is what, the, this is what it says. It says, Now the festival of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was near. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put Jesus to death, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers of the temple police about how he might betray him to them. They were greatly pleased and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began to look for an opportunity to betray him to them when no crowd was present. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us all this morning, no matter who we are, no matter what questions or doubts, no matter what positions we have, we would come in here today and hear from you and that you would lead us to repentance and to moving in new directions. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if you've read any of the gospel stories before, you know that as we get into this chapter that it's easy to sort of kind of look at this 
a little bit like with the characterization of what we do with Star Wars, right? Star Wars sort of works in this way where it's like there's really clear good guys and there's really clear bad guys. If you saw The Force Awakens, Kylo Ren didn't come out the first time and you're like, oh, he looks friendly, right? Everything you saw was like, okay, that's the bad guy. And, 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 and that's what goes on here. If you know the gospel stories, in the same way, you can read this and go, oh, chief priests and scribes, those are the bad guys. We all know who the good guy is, and we know who the good guys are trying to be in the disciples, and those are the bad guys. And they're the bad guys every single time you read it through. That is a convenient way for us to look at this. But this morning, I want us to consider whether there is something about the chief priests and scribes that also lives in us, that lives in us individually and lives in us communally, that maybe God is calling us this day to repent of, to move in some new directions. Because my suspicion is, if we take a look at it, it's going to live a lot closer to home than we think. So the question is, what's going on with them? Why is it that they start this passage immediately saying, we got to kill him? I mean, it seems pretty extreme, doesn't it? I mean, what's Jesus doing? I mean, even if we believe, if we believed, that there are uh, times and places where it's appropriate to punish someone with death, what has Jesus done, right? He's taught. He's healed some people. He's, you know, uh, kind of wandered the countryside with a small group of people talking about the kingdom of God. He's hung out with some people like prostitutes and tax collectors, but I mean, that might not be what they do, but why, why, why killing him? But what's going on here is not just kind of a petty little game that these chief priests and scribes are playing. What Jesus has done is that Jesus has, has kind of moved against everything that their culture and society has built itself on. It's hard for you and I to relate to this because we live in a country where there's the separation of church and state. Not many people actually know what that means, but we kind of quote it a lot, knowing that there's just not supposed to be a lot of like, well, it's not supposed to be different, right? They didn't live that way at all. So what they lived in, the chief priests and scribes were the leaders of this temple system, and the temple system governed every part of Jewish life. It governed not just faith, although it did govern that. It didn't just govern religion, but it governed politics. It governed economics. And so every part of Jewish life revolved around this religious temple system. And the chief priests and scribes are the leaders of that system. They're the ones who are kind of um, holding on the tradition. They're the ones who are kind of saying, this is how things work. This is how they work. Even the, the, the festival here. It says it's the festival of the Passover of unleavened bread. Everybody knew what that means. Every year we do the same thing. Every year this is how we celebrate the people coming out of slavery in Egypt. Every year this is kind of how things work. Everyone knows how it works. God works with us in this time. We have the Passover meal. Everybody understands. God works in these systems. And here comes Jesus, who doesn't ask anyone's permission for what he's doing, doesn't ask the temple authorities if they're you know, feeling okay about it. Doesn't ask anyone to validate what he's doing so that it seems okay. He hadn't been born into the right family. He doesn't go to the right schools. He doesn't have any of the right mentoring. He doesn't have any of the right credentials. And yet he starts debating with the rabbis and the teachers who do have the training. Right there in the middle of the temple. He starts hanging out with people that if you want to be a spiritual leader, you would know make you unclean, like prostitutes and tax collectors. Everybody knows that they make you unclean and ceremonially unclean, and you can't go into the presence of God through a leader like that. And yet he's not asking anyone's permission. He is calling into question everything about how they do their life. And so I don't think that these chief priests and scribes are just really bad people who are threatened personally by Jesus. There is some of that going on, but I believe as religious people, they truly believe they were doing the right thing. We have to protect this system. This is how God works. 
It's always been this way. God's always worked in these things. And so for someone to come and claim outside of that that God's kingdom might just be over here, there's a sense of going, no, 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 no. They miss the Messiah right there in front of them because they have predetermined the answers to questions before they've ever heard the question. Because they just know God works this way. I don't know about you, but when you start thinking about it that way, that starts sounding a lot more and more like the world we live in today. Starts sounding more and more like me. I've got ways that I like doing things. I like ways and patterns and traditions where I found meaning and I found something powerful and then someone to come along and just say, actually, it's over here, is not something that I just naturally embrace. It's not something that we naturally embrace. I mean, you think about it, we have um, built, and we should feel the tension of this. You and I should feel the tension of this every day. We have built a religious institution on following Jesus. There is a tension there. Because Jesus butted heads with every religious institution of his day, and we built an institution on how to do that. See, there's something very subtle that happens with institutions, and it happens without anyone meaning for it to happen. And what happens is, is that the institutions have a life, and they have a life because they help people to get to a greater goal, right? But what happens with institutions is that we subtly over time start thinking that the institution is actually the point, and it's not the point. The only value that the church has is in pointing people to Jesus. The only value that the church has is in proclaiming the kingdom of God. We are not the big idea. The kingdom of God is the big idea. And we have value in how we point people to something that is bigger than all of us together. But it is so easy to start saying, no, 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 we know how things work. This is, we're the point. We got to protect it because this is how we experience it. There is an inherent tension with building a religious institution around following Jesus. Now, institutions aren't bad. If you get two or three people together to figure out how you do life together, you've got a little institution there. I'm not against institutions at all, and I don't think faith is. But we must be aware of the tension, because Jesus is leading a movement, not building an institution as his primary goal. So what does that mean? Well, one of the reasons that I am a Presbyterian is because we are supposed to, in theory, inject that tension into our system. Here's what I mean by this. This is really important. We are part of the Reformed theological tradition, and that's not just a churchy word that you need to kind of blank out at. It's really important because it is the hallmark of what we do here. And what the, the core of this tradition is the idea that God is bigger than any system we can create for God. That we can say things about God, we can proclaim things about God, we can know things about God, but we don't believe in what some seminaries offer, which is systematic theology. Because we don't believe there's a system where we're like, oh, we've got, we have systematized faith. Everything about God we've now figured out in some sort of equation that just works all the time. The story of the Bible, like we see with Jesus here, is that God is constantly breaking out of systems and doing new things. God is bigger than anything that we can construct, and our tradition is meant to have that tension as part of our lives. So we are what we say is reformed and always reforming. And the reason that we're always open to reforming is because while we have traditions that are very meaningful and very powerful and very well thought through, the moment we sit there and go, no, that tradition has to stay, God is in that, we actually violate our own theology. 
Let me put it to you in a different way. We have a great new members class going on. We've got about 40 people that are going through a new members class. And they will, if they are like previous new members classes, um, the vast majority of them will not come from a Presbyterian background. Many of them have maybe not been involved in a Presbyterian church before ever in their life. They'll come from a, they either weren't a part of church or maybe Episcopalian or Catholic or Orthodox or Baptist or something else. Well, in one of our recent new members classes, I had a person ask me and they said, hey, listen, I want to ask you about this way of how Presbyterians do things because I grew up in a different tradition and we had a different way of doing things. So how, what's the Presbyterian way of doing this, and that this isn't important what it is. We, we can devise a this around anything. We've got, we've got every committee you could think of under the sun to devise a system around. What's the Presbyterian way? And I said, I want to answer this carefully because this is really important. There's a Presbyterian tradition, and there's way, ways that we have found to engage this that are meaningful, but we don't have a way. Because the moment we say this is our way and it's set, we violate our own theology. Because we are meant to have this idea that none of our systems and traditions encapsulate the fullness of God. That tension is something we're just meant to sit in all the time. Because otherwise, individually and as a community, we are going to probably be a lot more like the chief priests and scribes than we would hope to admit we are. Because we just know the systems and how they work. Where does that describe us? Where does that describe you? Where have you become so entrenched in what you think or how you act or where God is or what is good in your politics, in your worldview, in your relationships? Where have you quit thinking, quit learning, quit exploring, quit experiencing the new thing God might be doing? Where is the places? Because we all have them where we go, this is just how it works. This is how I work. This is how the system works, and it works really well this way. Because as human beings, we find great comfort in devising systems that way. But while, friends, it's comfortable, it's not necessarily faithful. We are called constantly to stand on the glory of our tradition while always holding open the idea that God may be doing something out here that is new and unexpected and different and fresh and a little bit scary. But we're always open. We should be the most creative people around seeking this new thing. Take, for example, how we're doing our covenant groups. We've had an amazing response. Many of you are going to be involved with these covenant groups, these small groups that are journeying together throughout Lent. We've got 50 groups that are doing this Lenten study of building a Benedictine rule of life. Um, I say we're doing it because it's going so well. The moment they don't go well, it's John Wasson and the discipleship committee who are doing it. But they've gone so well. We had double the number of people we thought might sign up. So we are doing a great job of running these covenant groups. It's really, really exciting. But I was talking to someone the other day who's a part of it, and he said, I don't get this. I am used to like a lecture format uh, where like a teacher who's an expert talks to me, and now I'm meeting, and there's this group, and there's no real teacher. It's kind of we're all co-learners and co-teachers, and there's curriculum, and they have different worldviews than I do, and they think differently than I do, and then there's this Benedictine rule of life that we're building. What is that? Like what curriculum is that under? right? The Benedictine movement's a monastic thing. Where, where does that come from? Is that in line with who we are and how we do things? He goes, what is this? Have you approved this? I'm like, no. It's John Wasson who's done this and the discipleship committee. Because in all seriousness, I have no idea what a Benedictine rule of life. I've never done it before in my life. My, my covenant group's meeting this afternoon, and I'm really excited to kind of, what is this thing that we're doing? But here's what does excite me. 
What excites me is that there is this way that people have started finding very, very powerful of how they want to live deliberately. Because like many of you, I feel a tension in my life where I feel like I am hurrying and rushing and busy all the times. And so much of that time, I feel like I'm just reacting to stuff. Just putting out a fire here. I'm putting out a fire here. So you're constantly going around trying to react to situations. And if there's a way that we can faithfully build a rule of life where we're saying, I'm going to be proactive in this. I'm going to be proactive in this. I'm going to be proactive in this. I'm going to pursue these things rather than living my life constantly in a hurried response to what the world is throwing to me, then friends, I am all open for exploring that. And that is not out of line with what our tradition is. That is embracing the best parts of who we are. Because we know our traditions and our theology, but there's this openness to maybe a way, maybe a way out here. When I think of this individually, I think about the opportunity that Beth and I and our kids had a, uh, a chance to be a part of before we moved here to Austin. As, as some of you know, before moving here, we were a part of planting a church in Atlanta. We started a church with seven people in our living room. Um, and which is a great and romantic idea until you start. And then it's really scary because you're like, hey, we have to make a living doing this, and there are seven people, which is a lot of money that everybody has. So, like, what are we going to do here? People are like, what's your children's program? It's like, it's my mom babysitting our two kids upstairs. Like, I, that's our whole children's ministry right there. Stacy, it makes you look amazing what we're doing here. Youth, it makes you look amazing in what we're doing here. And it was really scary. And I remember our first meeting when one of the young guys, so it was six young people, most of whom were not involved with church, and then one retired Presbyterian pastor. And I remember our first meeting when we were trying to get organized, and you're scared out of your mind, and one of the young people goes, hey, let's agree that no matter what happens in this, we're definitely not starting a church. And you're like, uh, no, that's exactly what we're doing. I don't know, <laughs> we're starting a church here. Uh, and Beth's looking at me going, this is a bad idea. I'm like, I know, I know, I don't know what we're thinking. But as we spent about six months in our living room with these seven people, and we talked about what we were doing, and we sort of built this community, and then we were planning for our first worship service, um, one of the people, one of these young people asked, and they're like, hey, could we at Kairos, that was the name of our church, could we do weekly communion? Could we do communion every week? And you're like, and my first, it was like, no no, 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 we don't, we don't do that. And he's like, no, you know, I know that there's some traditions. And I was like, that's not our tradition. And what we do, it's like we do it every quarter, or if we're really into it, we do it every month, and it's the same Sunday of the month every single time. That's how you do communion. I don't know. He goes, no, well, what if, we, what if we tried it differently? And I'm like, no, there's a rule. Like, there's a rule somewhere out there that says how this works. And we're trying to build something here. I mean, why are you messing with, the, with how we do communion. Like this whole thing works really, really well without you doing this. He's like, no, 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 I think we could do it. And I was like, it's in the Bible. The Bible says somewhere you shall not have communion more than once a month. I don't know where it is, but I'm telling you, it's there. It, it, it's, it, it happens to us all the time. Our natural reaction is, no, that's not how it works. We do that individually. We do that as, as systems and organizations all the time where our first response is, no. And finally, this retired Presbyterian pastor looked at me and he goes, Thomas, there's no rule. I'm like, there is a rule. And he goes, no, there's no rule. There's no rule about how we do this. And so for eight years, our eight years of worshiping at Kairos, this table was the gathering point every single worship service. And I worried that it would get stale. I worried that it would get old. I mean, it's like, how much can you say about communion every single week? This table has become, over time for me, more of a mystery than anything else. 
mean, you think about it. We, I know we do this. We have our way of doing it. We have our systems, and everyone comes up this aisle and goes out that aisle. I mean, I know we know this, right? You think about what this table is. This table is saying this is the communion place with the creator of the universe. This is the place that no matter who you are or what you've done, you are welcomed here, that you are accepted into community with God and with Jesus. You think about that. You can dwell in that forever and never get your arms around what it truly means and the beauty of what it truly means. One of the most natural things we do is something that we need to consider if it's right. One of the most natural things we do, we may need to repent of individually and we may need to repent of together because one of the most natural things that all of us do in our life is build airtight systems for how we know things work and that is one of the most comforting things as a human being we can have but it's not necessarily faithful. Where do we need to be open to the thing God might be doing right in our midst to considering. I'm not asking you to change your mind on anything. I'm asking you not to become so calcified that you know the answer before you consider a question. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that this day we would move beyond our set practices and patterns, our dogmatic insistence on holding on to things the way we like them, and that we would release, that we would hold those traditions, they would root and ground us, but we would always live in the tension of looking with fresh eyes as to what you're doing in our life, what you're going to do this week in our life, what you're going to say to us this week, how you're going to lead us. Help us to live with these kinds of open hands because you are the one who guides it. You are the one who leads us forward. And may this table today represent a place where we are all welcome to come. And may we see with your eyes the things you're doing in our lives, our families, our church, and our city this day. Commune with us here and lead us in new directions, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.